Welcome to the 410th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today is February 8, 2022. Today I welcome Elizabeth Outka, author of Viral Modernism, the Influenza Pandemic and Interwar Literature. Just a reminder, you can usually catch COVID calls live on its new time, weekdays at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can hear COVID calls anytime recorded as podcasts on iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. And as always, please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. I've been reading an obituary or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. The headline is, a 105-year-old woman who survived the 1918 flu dies after contracting COVID. This appeared September 30th, 2021 in the Associated Press. She lived a life of adventure that spanned two continents. She fell in love with a World War II fighter pilot, barely escaped Europe ahead of Benito Mussolini's fascists, ground steel for the U.S. war effort, and advocated for her disabled daughter in a far less enlightened time. She was, her daughter said, someone who didn't make a habit of giving up. And then in September of 2021, at age 105, Primetta Giacopini's life ended the way it began, in a pandemic. I think my mother would have been around quite a bit longer if she hadn't contracted COVID, her 61-year-old daughter Doreen Giacopini said. She was a fighter. She had a hard life, and her attitude always was, basically, all Americans who were not around for World War II were basically spoiled brats. Primetta Giacopini's mother, Pasquina Fay, died in Connecticut of the flu in 1918, age 25. That flu pandemic killed about 675,000 Americans, a death toll eclipsed in September of 2021 by the coronavirus pandemic. Primetta was two years old when her mother died. Her father, a laborer, didn't want to raise Primetta or her younger sister, Alice. He sent Alice back to Italy, their ancestral homeland, and handed Primetta to an Italian foster family that then relocated to Italy in 1929. The way mom talked about it, he didn't want to raise those kids alone, and men didn't do that at that time, Doreen recalled. It's ridiculous to me, she said. Primetta supported herself by working as a seamstress. Raven-haired with dark eyes and sharp features, she eventually fell in love with an Italian fighter pilot named Vittorio Andriani. I didn't see too much of him because he was always fighting someplace, Primetta told the Golden Gate Wing, a military aviation club in Oakland, California, in 2008. Italy entered World War II in June of 1940. The local police warned Primetta to leave because Mussolini wanted American citizens out of the country. Primetta refused. Several weeks later, the state police told her to get out, warning her that she could end up in a concentration camp. In June of 1941, Andriani was missing in action. Primetta learned later that he had crashed and died near Malta. While he was missing, she joined a group of strangers making their way out of Italy on a train to Portugal. In Spain, one can still see, after two or three years, the traces of the atrocities of the past, Primetta wrote in a letter to a friend in the midst of her flight. At Port Fou, the Spanish border, not one house is left standing. Everything got destroyed because the town is an important train transit point. I've seen so much destruction that I've had enough. The day after tomorrow, I get on the ship, and I'm sure all will go well, she wrote. In Lisbon, she boarded a steamer bound for the United States. She returned to Torrington, bought a Chevrolet sedan for $500, and landed a job at a General Motors plant in Bristol, grinding steel to cover ball bearings for the war effort. She met her husband. Umbert Bert Giacopini on the job. They stayed married until he died in 2002. Primetta gave birth to Doreen in 1960 and received devastating news. The infant had been born with spina bifida, a birth defect in which the spinal cord doesn't fully develop 
For the first 50 years of her life, Doreen needed crutches to walk. Worried that Doreen would slip during Connecticut's winters, the family moved to San Jose in 1975. My folks were born a long time ago, Doreen said. Their attitude about disability and my mother's attitude about disability particularly was it was lucky I was smart and I should get a good job I really liked because I probably wouldn't be getting married or having children. They did not take parenting classes, she said. But Primetta was pushy, Doreen said, and never stopped fighting for her. She once convinced school officials to move accelerated classes from the third floor of Doreen's school to the first floor so Doreen could participate. During the springs in Connecticut, she demanded that city sweepers clear their street of salt and sand so Doreen wouldn't slip. In 2021, during a visit on September 9th, Doreen noticed her mother was coughing. She knew her mother's caretaker had been feeling sick after her husband returned from a wedding in Idaho. All three had been vaccinated. But as she drove away, Doreen guessed that her mother had contracted COVID-19. I made sure we said, I love you. She did the I'll see you later alligator sign. I think we both said after a while, crocodile, Doreen said. That was the last time I saw her. Two days later, Primetta was in the emergency room. Her oxygen levels dropped steadily over the next six days until nurses had to put an oxygen mask on her. She became confused and fought them so hard she had to be sedated, Doreen said. Test x-rays told the story, pneumonia. Faced with the decision of whether to put Primetta on a ventilator, they said nobody over 80 makes it off a ventilator, Doreen said. She decided to remove her mother's oxygen. Meta died two days later, on September 16, 2021. She was 105 years old. She had such a strong heart that she remained alive for more than 24 hours after they removed the oxygen, Doreen said. I'm full of maybes, what I should have done with the ventilator, but it broke through three vaccinated people. She added, I'm reminding myself that she was 105. We always talk about my grandmother and mother. The only thing that could kill them was a worldwide pandemic. The life story of Primetta Giacopini, who died in September of 2021 at 105 years old. Okay, I'd like to turn to my conversation for today, one I've really been looking forward to, and let me introduce my guest, Elizabeth Outka. Elizabeth Outka is professor of English at the University of Richmond. Her latest book, Viral Modernism, The Influence of Pandemic and Interwar Literature, which appeared with Columbia Press in 2020, investigates how one of the deadliest plagues in history, the 1918-19 influenza, silently reshaped the modernist era, infusing everything from T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland to the emergence of viral zombies to the popularity of seances. She is the recipient of numerous awards and grants, including a fellowship from the National Endowment for the Humanities. She's written on topics ranging from consumer culture to post-colonial representations of trauma and disability studies. And her first book, was Consuming Traditions, Modernity, Modernism, and the Commodified Authentic. You can also find her essays in Modernism, Modernity, Novel, Contemporary Literature, the Paris Review Daily, and many other edited collections. Elizabeth Outka, welcome to COVID Calls. Oh, thanks for having me, Scott. So I'd like to start the way I generally do, just find out where you're calling from and what the pandemic situation looks like there today. So I'm calling from uh, Richmond, Virginia, and. Uh, like most places uh, in the United States, we had a we had a big spike um, of Omicron, and uh, and now it is it is falling, um, hopefully just as fast. Um, we've had about one and a half million cases of COVID so far across the pandemic, and um, roughly seventeen thousand five hundred deaths. Uh, and Richmond is is were um, you know. Hospitals are full, but not completely overwhelmed, um, at least at least as of today. And uh, yeah, and so we're just we're just hoping that that the downward uh, uh, trajectory continues. And what's this time been like for you? Do you have a, a sort of personal memory or something that is like a, a signpost for you that stands in for what COVID has been like? Well, as you can imagine, it's it's been a, a the thing that stands out to me most probably is the same for most people, but March of 2020, um, the book on this 
you know, forgotten pandemic, the influenza pandemic um, had come out in in uh, October of, of 2019, and and sort of right around the time the virus was emerging, and uh, and so for me, that week in March where, you know, we started the week and it was like, whoa, this could be really very terrible. Um, and uh, and then we ended the week with just in a completely sort of different place. So it was a little bit like a bad movie where you see your research come to life, um, and uh, and all of the things that um, I had spent you know five years studying started to unfold, um, and that that dizzying sense of not knowing where you were in the story and what was happening and things that seemed unthinkable the day before. Um, to take a very trivial example, I remember thinking about, we were talking about March Madness and at the beginning of the um, week, we thought like, oh, you know, it could be postponed, <laughs> right? And that, you know, three days later, that seems that seems sort of so um, uh, naive. Uh, and so, yeah, it was, uh, it was, it was sort of like watching, a, uh, watching my research come to life and, uh, so my next book is going to be on happiness, um, and and I'm hoping that the trend just continues. Oh, I can't wait to read that. <laughs> we all need that book. Uh, yeah, I've talked to lots of disaster um, researchers, social scientists, humanists, um, people who've written about disasters in many different ways. Um, and I, I'm sort of curious to ask you, you know, what kind of inquiries you got, particularly early in the in the pandemic. Myself, you know, I got the normal calls I usually get, you know, can you put this in some sort of context? And it seemed that the media was, um, that reporters were rightfully kind of desperate to put it in a broader framework, have a touch point in the past in a, in a sense, and I don't fault them for this, but to be able to write that paragraph that said something like this makes sense. And it, it, in the end was okay. Yes. I'm, I'm, I'm vastly simplifying the difficulty of reporting on disaster, which is incredibly hard. So I'm not demeaning what reporters are trying to do, but I'm curious what those inquiries were like for you. It is, it was, it was very, um, it was exactly like that, right? Um, and I had a lot of sympathy as you did, right? For the, the, this, this desire to know where we were in the story, right? Were we just at the, the, the start and how does it end and what characters are we playing? And, um, does it have a happy ending? And how long is it? And all of that, um, what I've called uh, in other places, narrative vertigo, right? That that where you just you just don't know where you are. Um, and uh, and so it was odd, you know. It as as an academic, you know, we're used to um, writing our things and um, and uh, and talking to fellow academics about them and and hoping that they will reach sort of a, a broader audience, but not really expecting them to. And um, when I started this book, it's like, what pandemic that like, what, which, what is that? Um, so it was very strange to suddenly have something that uh, have research that that was that was sort of relevant um, to broad audiences. That was that was a very strange um it was very strange and and creepy in in certain ways, right? One doesn't want to be, um, one doesn't want to have this particular knowledge. And since you mentioned it, let's let's actually start with that because you just published a. Um, we're going to talk about your book in detail, but you just mm -hmm. published a piece in the Washington Post at the end of January, titled "The Pandemic Has Given Us a Bad Case of Narrative mm -hmm. Vertigo." So now, almost two years into the pandemic, um, and the narrative arc has let us down. Uh, a little bit. I'm just going to read a line um, from this piece. Most of us long to inhabit a clearer pandemic story, you write, one with a predictable plot where cases decline and variants disappear. We want an arc where we know things get better, even if they're never the same, and where the pandemic comes to a decisive end. But that's not the story we're in, you write. It's not. It's the story we want to be in. Um, but it's, um, I think that I kept coming back and sort of really for two years to the word traction, right? Like it's very hard. I think we're all familiar with how difficult it is to get traction at this moment. The, um, that you, you know, you start something and you don't finish it and you have a thought and you can't get to the end of it and you don't know whether you should go to the store or you shouldn't, or, you know, what, what, 
like all of these things suddenly in flux. Um, and you don't, you know, in, in um, I mean, mortality is, is everywhere, right? Um, and, uh, and ever present. And so it's just, it's, we long for something that is where we know where we are. I think that's why people watch disaster movies or, or like contagion, right? Because, because it, it gives us what um, Priscilla Wallace called a, uh, uh, the contagion narrative. Right. And so you get a lot of scientists sort of, you know, looking through microscopes and, um, and some shots of animals who might be the, the vector. And um, and then uh, some some montages of um, kind of coming up with a cure and then, you know, it being delivered. And, and that's sort of what we what we want. Um, one of the things that's just fundamentally true about viruses is that they are invisible to the eye. And uh, and that makes the the sort of the threat a, a threat that is literally in the air, right? A deadly lethal threat that's literally in the air is something that's very hard for the mind to get to get around. And um, so so I, you know, one example is, and we we can talk about it at, at, at length later. But uh, is pale horse pale rider and what she does to. Uh, this is a novel or novella by uh, Catherine Ann Porter, which is about the 1918 influenza pandemic. And she uses the language, um, her sort of plot structure to show exactly this, sort of what happens. The characters are in this war story and they it's a terrible story, right? But they know what the story is and it's very, it's told in this realist narrative voice, right? And they know what characters they're playing. One's a soldier and one's a female journalist and they know where the danger is and they know what the enemy is. And it's and it's a terrible story, but it's a story. And people were used to telling that story by 1918. And then what happens in the novella is the influenza pandemic kind of surges over the story. And all that story breaks apart, right? And it becomes a kind of delirium, surreal delirium narrative as as she descends into the, a flu delirium and and everything about that story, because they knew the ending of that story and it was a bad ending. The soldier was going to die. But that turns out not to be the story they're in. And, and there's real dangers in thinking that you're in one story when you're actually in another. So that's and the really shows that. And that's the vertigo that you're yes. you're sort of isolating here as you you think that you're having one set of experiences that you've kind of got mapped out narratively. And I'm interested in sort of the psychosocial ways that that works, you know, the, the stories we tell ourselves to make sense of scary things, but then we find that it's actually not uh, moving the plots moving in a different way. It's deeply unsettling. I think I'm oversimplifying, but you know, I think that sense of vertigo is one that that many of us have experienced throughout these two years. No, far, far from oversimplifying. I think you you described it beautifully. Um, that's that's exactly what's happened. And there's it's a kind of, I mean, this is a pain that certainly predates the pandemic. Um, thinking that you're in one kind of story arc and uh, in a in any number of sort of factors of our lives, career. Um, uh, 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 relationships, friendships, right? Um, and then find discovering that that you're not in that story at all. And sometimes it's a happy story. Sometimes we expect things to be a disaster and they turn out to be fine. So sometimes it's a happy, like you're in a different story um, that way. But more often than not, the way the human mind works is you sort of expect, you expect one plot line and, uh, and life tends to deliver quite another. But that experience has been amplified dramatically in the pandemic as we all scramble in midair to, to make sense of what's coming next. And is there going to be another variant? And how long will it last? And it's something that history often leaves out, right? History gives us this story when we, when we know when the war ends and we know when the pandemic ends. But how do you account for that time where you didn't know Right. When it ended, right, and um, and that's that's something that literature is really good um about uh portraying. Um, we can uh, literature has all sorts of tools um and art in general to um to remind us that this kind of narrative vertigo is is something that's pretty um 
pretty common. I'm talking with Elizabeth Outka today on COVID calls, and I want to talk now, if we can, about your book, Viral Modernism, the Influenza Pandemic and Interwar Literature. We got a preview a second ago. We were talking about Catherine Ann Porter, but I want to go back before the book came out and ask you how you got interested in the 1918-1919 influenza pandemic, because it's one of those, probably for most people, like they had to memorize it at some point. Maybe they had to, or they were taking a class and World War One was mentioned and they said, oh, by the way, another maybe 50 million people died. And then usually they just sort of brush right past it. It all gets lumped into one horrible era and we move on. You lingered with it. Right. It, um, I, I got interested in it um, mainly, it sort of started with a mystery, right? Uh, I had spent my career studying this very period, sort of early 20th century um, uh, and interwar, interwar literature and, uh, and am trained, trained in that area, um, teach in that area. And, um, and it was pretty far along um, before I even heard of the influenza pandemic, um, or that it even registered, you know, I might have read past the sentence, but most of us have had influenza, and you kind of shrug your shoulders and, and think, oh, well, that's, um, uh, you know, it couldn't couldn't be too big. And and in my area of study, modernism, the big huge trauma is World War One, right? That's the it's the um, that's that's what we that's what we study, and and so we uh, sort of mo- many many things are seen through that lens. Um, and uh, and so then I started to learn about the influenza pandemic. I just I sort of read some things. Uh, my stepfather had given me um, the great um, pandemic book, uh, John Barry's terrific um, history and uh, the great influenza. Sorry, um, the and I just I couldn't believe the numbers that I was that I was reading. Right, fifty to hundred million people die. Um, half a billion people are infected. Right. And um, that's the way literature and art works. That's you cannot kill 100 million people and have it not show up in the literature. Right. Like you can't like it, it just it's that's not the way art works. Right. Like you can't. That's too huge a catastrophe for you for it not to show up. So so I thought, OK, well, why? Where did it go? Why does it drop out of cultural memory? Um, and uh, and where did this this massive trauma go? You know, by 1918, I think it's something like 31,000 children in New York City alone are orphaned, right, by the pandemic. So so where where does it go, and why does it disappear? So that's really where the research started um, with a mystery, um, because because I knew it had to be there. So you were looking particularly for traces of it through artworks because that's the literature because that's what your your training is so there's a canon i guess of that but then you go much further than the canon so walk us through a little bit you know the literature that you were that what you were expecting to find maybe and then what surprised you well it um you know the 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 sort of accepted conventional wisdom was that um there's really not much you know it doesn't produce great literature it wasn't it wasn't that important um and uh, and and there are what what I discovered is that in order to see it, you have to know the sensory and emotional history of the pandemic. So you have to know what it looked like and smelled like and sounded like, and tasted like, and um, what the visuals were, what the emotions were. Um, and uh, and so I read hundreds of letters um, written by flu survivors that are in uh, at the London uh, Imperial War Museum um, that were uh, written in the 1970s. Um, a researcher, um, Richard Collier, had taken out ads all over Europe and, uh, and the United States asking uh, for survivors to write in. And, uh, and so reading through all those letters, as well as some of the flu histories and newspaper accounts and, um, and archival material, it really came into focus, like what it looked like, all of those sort of that history. And so, um, and then I, I sort of, I looked at all of the, the literary works that mention it directly, but some of them were then works that mentioned that represented the flu um, through atmospheres, right? Through 
um, through the, if, so if you know what to look for, it starts to appear everywhere, even in works that I had taught for years without seeing it. So Virginia Woolf gets the flu uh, during the pandemic and, uh, and her heart is damaged probably by her case of the flu, which is very common. Mm-hmm. And I taught one of her novels, Mrs. Dalloway, many, many, many times. And of course, Mrs. Dalloway is recovering from her case of influenza, which has damaged her heart. Right? And so it's usually read as a book that is uh, focused on the war and a war survivor, but it's actually focused on two, the two survivors of the two great cataclysms of the early 20th century, the, the World War One and the flu pandemic. So so like most obsessions, right, it starts to appear everywhere once you're looking for it, but it, um, it pops up in unexpected places. Someone pointed out to me that it's in the, uh, it's a wonderful life. Um, the pharmacist's son is, uh, is uh, he gets the telegram and it's not your son has died in the war, it's your son has died in the flu pandemic. So, and one thing that's striking about all of the letters that I read is almost to a letter, they all say, I never forgot, I never mm. forgot. I never forgot, it's like it was yesterday. And when I interviewed a hundred, this, this very moving obituary that you read um, about this, this person who died at 105 from COVID, I interviewed um, a 105 year old woman who had su- survived, gotten the flu pandemic when she was eight. And in my mm. sort of chirpy, um, uh, researcher way, um, I said, oh, so like, why do you think that um, people forgot the pandemic? And she looked at me like I was crazy. And she said, we didn't, we didn't forget the pandemic. Mm-hmm. It was everywhere, right? Like we, we talked about it for years, right? So, so, but how do you, this, a moving obituary again, that, that she, she lost, loses her mother from the pandemic and this, in the influenza pandemic, Right. And this has massive repercussions for her entire life. But she's not necessarily thinking the pandemic, right? But these, all of these, these sort of vast losses that that un- unfurls, but that is the pandemic. Um, but the aftermath of a pandemic is is in these vast individual losses um, that don't get recorded. They become a kind of climate or an atmosphere. Um, and... Uh, and so they're everywhere and nowhere. They're hiding in plain sight. This description of an atmosphere is a really is a really powerful one, and and I, and I think I wonder what you think about you know I'm really fascinated about the letters that you read and um, the descriptions that people use to talk about mm, loss from the pandemic versus loss if they're writing about their own bodies, let's say you know injury in war or loss of a loved one in war. Do you? Do you find, because you've read so closely into this period, that people describe that pain differently? Because I, I am sort of fascinated by this very, I think, offhand, you know, assertion many people have made. It's this terrible period. It all got thrown in there. I'm like, well, that's not how we live. Like, people are quite specific about the trauma that they experience. We're able to talk about the differentiation of pain between a disease and between war. They might both be bad, but we don't just say, yeah, it was just a terrible time. So why would people in 1918 be any differently when they react any differently? Yeah, it was a very, I mean, there's so much loss, right? There's just an unimaginable amount of loss. Um, you get, you know, eight to 10 million in World War One and 50 to 100 million in, in the flu pandemic. And, um, and so... Why you you do see a real difference, you know? I don't know if the difference in physical pain is, uh, you know, sort of injuries. Um, um, often, you know, probably 
probably similar. There, there, there was an eerie sort of way that the lungs that doctors saw from poison gas, indistinguishable from the damage that the flu does to lungs in 1918, right? So, so it's just, it's, um, so, so there's some overlap, but one of the differences, and this also helps explain why the flu disappears, is the war, World War One, is terrible conflict, um, uh, deadlier war than any anything anyone had ever seen before, right? Um, uh, you know, then, then World War Two comes, but but uh, but it, but it was just a monstrous, monstrous war with monstrous conditions. Um, but even if you disagreed, as many people did, as to um, as to why that war was being fighted, fought, or or whether it was worth fighting. Um, a death in war was something that people could understand, right? And there was a sacrificial structure that you could build around it, right? My, you know, your son has died in the war, but he has died defending freedom or defending the country, right? That there's a, and that has made potentially other deaths less likely, right? Whether that's true or not is another question, right? But the but there was a structure, and we have to have structures in order to understand grief, right? Um, and to and to make it through, and to make it through loss, um, a, a why um, and a, and a meaning in it. Death from the influenza pandemic. Not only was it influenza, which seemed very common, right, that everyone had had influenza, um, but there's nothing you can do, right, with the sacrificial structure with influenza. If you get influenza. Your family is more likely to die of influenza in 1918, right? You're not, your death doesn't have meaning in the same way, right? There's no sacrificial structure that you can build around it, which means that people often lied about where, um, how their relatives died, um, uh, that their relatives died in the war rather than, um, the, rather than the pandemic, right? It was considered by some, not everyone, right? But a sort of shameful way to die, right? And there's all these writers who are about ready to ship off to war, and they're really excited about um, about about it. And um, and then they get quarantined, right, because of the flu, and they just think, oh, right, that's not um, that's not that's not um, that's not how uh, I want. And and there is there's I think a gender thing as well, right? War is uh, war is history. It's a masculine power struggle. Um, it's a struggle of strength against strength and, and, and all of those sorts of narratives. And there's, there's, you know, potential for heroism and, and there certainly is in, um, in pandemics as well. Um, but it's, uh, but it's quite different and it's diseases usually coded, um, often coded female, right. And, uh, and a sort of weakness and, and you can understand that somebody who had survived four and a half years of the of the front lines of World War One, um, coming back and dying of influenza. That's that's a tough. That's tough. Um, but of course, influenza. That influenza killed healthy young adults in very very high numbers. Um, it's a, the influenza usually kills the very young and the very old, but not this flu. So that's some really important points there about sense making and in disaster and and I'm really struck by your your reading of it that um an influenza death was maybe feminized because it was not on the battlefield um and it was although I think men and women died in in somewhat equal rates from the influenza but still it was interpreted as as you say a, a sort of less than meaningful death in the when another kind of death was all around at that time as well I think that's that's really powerful. I think it also points to failures of of historians for a period of time after the great influenza pandemic to do the the necessary work of actually talking about it separate from the war yes. and actually telling a deep and detailed history. You mentioned John Barry and others who written about it, you know, Alfred Crosby and those who really taken the the disease on its own. And of course. The way I look at it is it's a it's a disease it's a global pandemic with a war in the middle of it rather than the other way around. I think if the pandemic had started first, um, it would you know the the it would it, it might have the history might be told might be told differently. But it's hard to tell the history of a disease because it is so systemic and um, and um, and its effects are and and yeah it's an invisible enemy and. 
And look, the pandemic, the influenza pandemic was a tale of defeat, right? right? It was a tale of defeat. There was no winners. Um, there was no cure. There was nothing people could do um, except make the patient comfortable and hope. Um, and so, and doctors and nurses did acted heroically, but they spread the pandemic from house to house as well, right? I mean, the, the virus from house to house. So, so it's just, it's the, the, the guilt and the complexities of the guilt um, uh, and the, um, and we all need ways to understand grief and loss and to structure it. And so, so I get, I get why the flu, people were overwhelmed. You can, you can only take so much catastrophe. Well, let's go a little further with this in terms of the way you understand the emergence of modernity in, in this time period, literary modernity in either in form or in content, because, um, you know, my reading of the sort of World War I literature, in many cases, the authors, um, you know, they tell a war story and then they deflate it. You know, they talk about the, the, the protagonist, whoever they are, usually a man, comes to realize that the sacrifice wasn't worth it and it was a, it was rigged from the beginning they were destined to fail. There is, it, and it usually ends on a down note, it's often not a celebration. Um, you know, I'm thinking of the American authors in this, in this regard. But you're describing some, some other notes that I should have been looking for, which goes beyond a character coming to realize that they were misled and they sacrificed for something that wasn't meaningful. You're just you're talking about disease and pandemic, which is just unknowable. It's right. it's mysterious. It's it's vengeful without knowing who the god was. It just it just lays people low, and there's no sense to be made of it. Which I'm trying to draw a distinction there. I don't know if you buy it, but I'm interested in, again in how this sense making. It, it's teaching me something about modernism that I hadn't quite thought of in this way before. And I think, you know, there, there, there are a lot of the sort of things we associate with modernist style, um, the sort of lack of plot, lack of character, fragmentation, um, um, things like, uh, things like that, this sort of disillusionment, alienation, isolation. A lot of that is, uh, is well established and in place before, um, before the war and also before the influenza pandemic. So, right. but what, but what, what happened was that it was the perfect style for a pandemic, to describe a pandemic illness, right? Which fragments reality and disrupts plot and, um, and dissolves characters. And, um, so it was sort of the perfect, the perfect style for, for describing a pandemic and also describing how it's everywhere, nowhere, right? So it disappears even as it appears everywhere. And so, so that was, you know, that, that was, uh, um, I, I think you know modernism does um, was the right style, but if you think about someone like Hemingway, like Ernest Hemingway, who writes obviously about World War One and disillusionment in all these ways that you're that you're talking about, that he um, he does talk a little bit in in a few short stories and uh, and a few sort of letters or or, or diary entries that um, he. Uh, he was there for the death of an influenza patient. And he used to, he was just like, that's too horrifying, right? Yes. That's too horrifying, right? I, I can't like that end, right? There was nothing heroic. There was nothing. I mean, it was yeah. horrible, degrading, terrible end. And uh, he's like, right, I'm sticking to, 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 you know, hunting, bullfighting and war. Right. 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 Um, um, I, I have, right. I can, I have nothing. I, that's, that's not a, there's no, there's no structure I can build around it. It's too, it's too, too horrifying. And, and I, that makes, that makes sense. But we, we definitely, we need, um, we need these, we need these stories and we'll need them from COVID. Um, we'll need them to, we have to make sense and make visible the, the, make visible the loss. So readers of, of your book, Viral Modernism, will find um, books they've probably read or poetry they've read or certainly that they may be familiar with. You write about um, in close detail about Willa Cather's novel, One of Ours, about uh, we talked about Catherine Ann Porter's uh, novella, Pale Horse, Pale Rider, Thomas Wolfe's Look Homeward Angel. And then you also talk about poetry of W.B. Yeats and T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland. 
Um, I asked you before we had this conversation if, if you might be willing to point to some specific things in one or more of those works where where you do see this sort of the viral modernism that you're that you're describing. Sure. And uh, there's a, two sort of points to make first that that one is that some of these um, some of the works I studied um, mention the flu directly um, and are sort of um, overt sort of overt discussions of the of the flu. And then some of the others that are actually written closer to the pandemic, I think before people could sort of totally process it, are sort of more covert um, uh, descriptions, right, where they're where they're tracing an atmosphere. Um, and so, um, so that's that's one point. And then the other point is that a lot of these works are very familiar, and I'm not um, like T. S. Eliot's *The Wasteland* or uh, W. B. Yeats's *The Second Coming*. And uh, like most pieces of great literature, these are not um, these are not uh, works that are about one thing, right? So, so the pandemic isn't the the secret key that will unlock um, everything that my students um, so often hope for. Um, but uh, but one element, right? That they capture a kind of gestalt of the moment, right? So so these these are works that channel the war and revolution and um, and pandemic illness and um, all at the same time. So we don't have to kind of choose um, choose one meaning. But um, yeah, so there's a few th a few sort of things that might resonate. I tried to pick some a few passages that might resonate um, at this particular moment. Um, and uh, and one is the kind of atmospheric quality, the sort of what is the what does it mean to live in an atmosphere where the air is infected, right? That that you have this invisible threat. Um, there's a kind of invasion, but you can't see it. Um, and where there's so many people who are feeling sort of um, like half alive, right? In a, a kind of living death state, which is one of the most common descriptions in the in the literature of feeling feeling like you're half alive and half dead. And some of that is from grief and some of that is maybe from recovering from a virus. Um, so, so here's T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland and here he's describing London and, uh, and there's a voice that is saying, um, a crowd flowed over London Bridge, so many. I had not thought death had undone so many. Sighs, short and infrequent, were exhaled, and each man fixed his eyes before his feet, flowed up the hill and down King William Street. And so that sort of sense that that um, that that there's ghosts sort of everywhere. Um, and in the book, I talk about this sort of obsession with seances that happened at this time, right? But this sort of sense that you yourself who are living are are a kind of ghost. And um and and then there's all of this loss, right? All of these people who were once were there animating um animating things and objects and clothes and uh, and who are now not there, right? And so um so that's one atmospheric um element. Um do you um yeah, should I, thank you. I read another <laughs> yeah no that's that, i mean that's i appreciate again this sort of your idea of the atmospheres and 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 people being missing which of course is going to lead uh for people to search uh and and so that's an important aspect of it i i wanted to um bring you to i want to point to one part in your book and when you're describing pale horse pale rider to me, this was a really fascinating part of the book, talking about Catherine Ann Porter, um, and, I, and I love her writing. And but you talk about the the context of her of her flu case. Um, I'm just quoting here from your book. You say um, she was living and working as a journalist in Denver for the Rocky Mountain News. Porter caught the flu in October 1918. Her friends at the newspaper had prepared her obituary. Her family made plans for the funeral, and she was left for dead in the hospital. Saved, the story goes, by an experimental injection of strychnine and it took her two decades before she could write about it, before she could turn that into, into prose. And I've thought a lot, I mean, since I read that, um, I want to know about that interval, that, that long. And, and, and also you said earlier, reading these letters that were written in the 1970s. I mean, you know, when I've studied other disasters like Hiroshima, for example, and you find that Hibakusha writing about their experience of living through 
that day in Hiroshima or Nagasaki. And they often won't write about it for 30, 40, 50 years. So there's another, this other dimension to this, which, of course, we have to explore through narrative. And we're reading narratives. We're looking for, for clues or atmospheres, as you describe, that are memory, but memory long in the making. Yes. So it's, it's not journalism. No. No, I mean, I think that this is, there's often a seed time that artists need before they can process it enough, right? To, to create, to create something of it, right? And, and so it doesn't surprise me that it took her so long and she came so close to death. Um, and, uh, and really felt like she was going to die. And she said that period just, split her life in two, right? That she was one person before and one person after. And I think, you know, that that we're feet, we're in the, one of those times that it's sort of time splits into a pre and post um, sort of pandemic moment. But I think that, I think this is true for trauma more generally, right? It often takes years and years and years for people to process it before the sort of demons of the past come knocking at the door and say say okay right you're ready you're ready to um you're ready to to tell this story you're ready to to deal with you know the um that world war ii vets very famously right don't talk about their experiences until they're in their 70s 80s right 90s sometimes right um and uh and then it all sort of comes out so i think we and the past changes, of course, right? Um, we may remember different things at different moments. We think of the past as fixed, but of course it's not. And learning one fact about it can change, as it did for me in my research, how the, the changes the lens through which I'm seeing it, right? So you're telling a completely different story. And so I think all of that takes time. Um, for the most part, the overt accounts of the flu in the literature are written 10 to 20 years later um, in the interwar period, right? And the the sort of subversive accounts written by like Wolf, uh, uh, Virginia Wolf or, um, or T.S. Eliot or W.B. Yeats, all of whom had intimate connections to the pandemic, right? Um, uh, really terrible encounters with the pandemic. Um, their accounts, that there the flu is more sort of diffuse through the they're 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 capturing the atmosphere but they themselves in the case of Yates anyway um are not necessarily thinking they're telling a flu story right you can mm -hmm. as a writer also sure. tell think you're telling one story and then 5 years later read it and think oh goodness that's about my mother right you know mm -hmm. or that's about this right we think of artists in charge of their or that we are in charge of our memories and stories, but but often they just kind of flow through us. Let me just remind folks that you're listening to COVID Calls and I'm talking to literary scholar and 1918 flu expert, Elizabeth Outka. And um, so I do want to talk about COVID a little bit. Mm -hmm. And based on what we're just saying now, it makes me think, um, and I felt like this about September 11 too, um, I mean, we're gonna, are we waiting 20 years before we, we have the kind of art that captures the atmosphere of this time? And I mean, it's, it's such cliche to say that we're living at a fast pace now. And, um, but in terms of artistic production, we really are. I mean, the demands of artists to produce right now in the midst of things to produce bits that become works. Um, that's just the pressure of the of the marketplace right now. So I wonder how you think about you know how these times will be different from the great influenza and, and I don't know I don't I don't I guess I'm not asking you to put a, a year on, on the board, but I am curious when you will start looking for the kinds of works that are capturing the complexities of this moment. Yeah, I mean, I think that they, as you said, like, I mean, it's faster now. They're coming out now. Um, uh, there's a lot of art of various mediums, um, being, being produced about, about COVID. Um, and, um, uh, and, and so I think that, um, I think that there is going to be a sort of whole flood of things. 
And those things are maybe what we need right now, or maybe they're too much, right? I myself sometimes uh, long at the end of the day not to um, pick up another influenza narrative, but uh, but something with a with a uh, like genre fiction um, uh, where you know what's going to happen. Um, I, I think that um, I think that so what we need um, as as writers, what we need to write, and as as readers or as viewers or as uh, as watchers, right? What we uh, what we need is gonna is gonna shift, right? So, so there's gonna be a lot that's gonna come out much more, I think, than um, than before. For one thing, the war isn't isn't uh, you know we're not in the middle of a massive global war, though certainly we have plenty of catastrophes. Um, but uh, so I think that it's gonna come out, you know, the art is gonna come out faster. But it's also still, I think, you're gonna see a slow seed time, and I think that say 20 years from now. Some of us will be picking up novels that are just out that talk about this era. And we're going to be like, oh, yes, it was like that. Right. Um, it was like that. And there's something profound sometimes when you pick up a piece of art and you feel like you've been seen. Right. Like you feel like, yes, that's that's the way it was. I couldn't have put it that way. Right. But yeah. that's. That's the way it was, and there's consolation. Um, there's consolation in that kind of um, that, that that kind of remembrance. But uh, but it may be also, yeah, that that readers may want something different now versus in uh, in twenty years. Um, I love Station Eleven, the novel. I think it's it's brilliant. Um, mm, and yeah. uh, but I watched the first uh, episode of the series um, with my son the other night, and I was like, Whoo, too soon. Uh, <laughs> too soon. I can't be in the grocery store. <laughs> out, right. Like I just that's that's been there, done that. Um, as my son said, like, yeah, if I wanted that, I would just take my mask off and go to the grocery store right now. <laughs> right? It's like, like that. But other people, you know, I mean, some people will want that right away. Some people will want to wait. Um, but there's going to be no shortage of art that comes that comes out of it. Um, I'm, I, I'm sure not the only one who watched movies in the after, you know, in the early days, and and there were all these people like getting close to each other, not in masks, and it's just like, what are you doing? <laughs> I'm right there with you on the genre fiction. I mean, I'm in Korea now, and we watch I watch the Korea dramas, and you know, up there. They're beautiful and, and the storylines are, are really complicated, but you generally know how, where they're going to land. And, and I like, I found that I really liked that. Um, and, and, and I guess it, you know, it does make me think, you used the word consolation a moment ago. And I really appreciate that word at this, at this time, because, you know, going back to our earlier discussion about pandemic sense making moment. And maybe pe people, I like it that they turn to people like you or like me and say, hey, explain to us what's going on. Use history as a guide. But I couldn't deliver a three-point plan based on the 1918 influenza. I found myself as I went back to that and, or as I went back and read Camus again or I read, um, you know, Defoe, um, I found more about this as sort of reservoir of humanity. and it. And it wasn't always good or bad, but it was somehow consoling to me that people had faced similar things. So it, it didn't yes. resolve itself with an action plan, which was totally unsatisfying to the journalists that I talked to, honestly. But that's where that's what I located when I went back and thought about those works and the history of those times. And for me, in this, in those, especially those early days of the pandemic, I found I found that same kind of consolation in that. Just reminding my, I kept thinking that my job was to figure out where we were in the story and what we needed to do and the, that action plan. And just to remind myself through this literature that what you're doing is in fact surviving the vertigo, right? Surviving the, the confrontation and, and the arrival of, of massive amounts of loss and grief and pain and, and that you you navigate it as best you can, but there's not a map. And part of why it's hard is that there's not a map. And, and that's intrinsic to the experience. It's intrinsic to the experience that you don't know where you are in the story rather than some sort of flaw, 
I guess, or not flaw, but it's it's not you, right? That that's part of the experience is that is is this vertigo. Um, but that's uncomfortable. But at least it does it is a kind of comfort to know that other people have experienced it. Um, and uh, and there's a lot of heroic sort of heroic things. That's a that's an old fashioned word, but um, small and large, right, that have happened in COVID. It's not what gets amplified. Um, and we're really terrible at amplifying all of the very, very worst things that people are doing um, in COVID. But there's also some amazing things that have, um, amazing uh, sort of uh, communities that um, that have formed and, and help that has been offered not to, um, and I'm, I'm not a, a yeah, not to put a shiny coat on it. Um, and something we haven't talked about is the vast inequalities and inequities that the that the pandemic unleashes um, and uh, and and amplifies and um, and reveals and shines a spotlight on. Um, so we're we're grappling with with a lot. Um, and sometimes, yeah, sometimes a sometimes a genre fiction, and sometimes we want something that we're experiencing to be represented. Sometimes we want something that we're not experiencing <laughs> to yeah. be represented. We're almost out of time, but I want to ask you about that that last point because, um, of course, there will be um, books and films and music on every aspect of what we're living through right now. There'll be no shortage of maybe more traditional heroic structured narratives. There'll be the sort of science hero um, kind of narratives, the rush for the cure, you know, the outbreak kind of uh, kind of story. Um, I'm going to be much more interested in in the ones about the healthcare workers yeah. who are and the teachers who are facing the things that most people don't want to face every single day, and they have to, or or society will completely collapse. And they're the they're the antiheroes in this time, and I, and that's what I'm going to want to read. That's what I spend a lot of time reading. But I, I want to ask you about that. Like, do I have a responsibility somehow right now? Do we have responsibilities right right now as readers, as scholars, as humans, to help preserve those stories? Because I do worry that ten years from now, like you said, we're going to pick up a novel and it's going to be about the race for the vaccine and, and the mRNA will somehow become the story of the pandemic. And it's, it is, but it's not, to me, it's not the important story. No. And I think that that is, that is where, um, I think that is where sort of literature can, can, can sort of step in. Um, I'm thinking of a novel like uh, they came like swallows, which is this, beautiful story of a the loss of a of a mother pregnant mother and um uh in the in the influenza pandemic and the way that the author evokes uh william maxwell um all of the small losses right that at the death of a parent of a, right the the gestures at bedtime the um the the humming in the kitchen the um all of those sort of tiny but deep individual losses, right? That can't be captured in the histories, but are captured in the literature. But there's a parallel, there's a parallel to those losses. And that's these tiny sort of gestures, right? Um, uh, Matt, as uh, Wolf says, uh, matches struck unexpectedly in the dark, right? These moments, um, she would call the moments of being or, um, uh, moments of, of, of beauty or moments of connection between people, or I think some of those photos of a healthcare worker holding a, you know, 86 year old man, right? In his last moments, right? Those sorts of things, um, are the things that we get out of bed in the morning for, right? The, those sorts of things. And to the extent that we can give that to our patients or our students or to our families or to other people, these sort of gestures that are small, the humming in the kitchen, right? Um, the, the bringing of food that, um, that are, you know, hallmarkized and, and all of those things, but, but they are the things that, that 
that can structure can structure life and can structure meaning and can have repercussions decades um, decades into the future. I just want to remind folks you've been listening to COVID calls and you can usually catch COVID calls at its new time, 7 p.m. Eastern time. And I want to thank my guest, Elizabeth Outka. And you should definitely get her book, read her book, Viral Modernism, the Influenza Pandemic and Interwar Literature. And I can't thank you enough for this conversation. I was so looking forward to it and uh, just really appreciate your your thinking and your writing at this at this time on these on these topics of making sense of this disaster. Thank you, Elizabeth. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Stay healthy, everyone. We'll see you next time on COVID Calls.